in the seventh chapter of the first book to the church of Corinth, we read, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do you seek to be free? Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean. Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they have no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they have no dealings with it. For the person, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his uh, betrothed, if his passions are strong and as it should be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in the heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries is betrothed, has be, uh, so then he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of God. This is our word of our God.
So Rich went ahead and served past his due date. He was only supposed to read last month, but he stepped up and he said he would be willing to continue on. So that's that service. That's what it looks like to serve. Um, let's open with a word of prayer. Um, I want to go back to Psalm 51. That was just really hit me when we were reading through that. Um, this is David's act of contrition. He's been found out that he's, he's taken Bathsheba and killed Uriah, and he's been found out. And his response is he goes to the Lord, and he, he doesn't rely on religion. He relies on the relationship with God. So let, let's go ahead and pray uh, just a little bit of that, that psalm. Um, Lord, I, I, I think of how David's heart towards you you said from the beginning, when we, when we preached through uh, 1 Samuel, he was a man after your own heart. And so, Lord, to hear him confess his sin so openly and even appeal to religious words, uh, clean me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. He, he, he doesn't dismiss religion, but, Lord, that's not where his heart is. That's not what he's counting on. Lord, he's counting on you. A sacrifice, if you desire to sacrifice, Lord, I'd give it to you, but that's not what you want. What you want is an upright heart, a clean heart. A sacrifice is just to atone when those things go wrong. And Lord, that, that's such a beautiful approach to how religion can fit into our relationship with you is it shouldn't take first place. Lord, what should be at first in our hearts is you, our love, our desire for you. And then we have ways of atoning when we've, when we've made mistakes, when we've fallen short, when we've sinned. And you accept us, and you've made a way for us to be with you. And Lord, fortunately, we don't have a sacrifice anymore. Jesus has been the sacrifice on our behalf. So thank you for making us pure and clean in him. And, and help us to remember that it is through Christ that we have access to you. None is worthy, only the great I am. And so Lord, would you bless all of us uh, this entire gathering of people, all, all of the people in Trinity, associated with Trinity, who have been here and have moved, and, and all of us, Lord, would you help us to remember that first and foremost, our, our religion is a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that introduces us into the heavenly places, because he has washed us, he has made us clean, he has wed us to himself and brought us to you, and so thank you for that, Lord, thank you for making a way for us. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be filling all of us, that we'd understand, that we would hear, that we would agree with what you're telling us, and that, Lord, it would sink deep into our hearts and minds and, and change how we, we approach our lives. And, Lord, we ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, in the 1960s, there was an actress named Nancy Kovac, and she was pretty busy in the 60s. It was a very busy time for her. She, she was in a uh, movie starring opposite of Elvis. She was in a, a Sword and Sand or Sword and Sandals movie called uh, Jason and the Argonauts. And she was in just about every television program that was on, it seemed. Um, she was a natural beauty, high cheekbones, uh, nice figure. She was just gorgeous. And so she often played the beautiful other woman who was not the one that was chosen and that kind of thing. Well, during her very hectic and busy schedule, she received a script uh, that she was you know, offered this role in this TV. She didn't know much about the TV series. It was just another gig for her. Um, so she was like, okay, well, I'll, you know, I'll take a look. And what she was going to do is she was going to play a witch doctor who was called upon to heal a stranger who'd been bitten by a, a venomous animal. And the healing process would, would then in, in turn enslave. He would, this would bewitch that stranger to herself. 
And um, so she'd never really heard of the show. She wasn't familiar with it. Um, she didn't know what the premise of the thing was or anything. And she says, uh, looking back years later, she said, I didn't understand her, the, the part she was playing. I didn't understand why she was doing that. I didn't understand anything. So you wonder how I ever got through all of that. She just assumed that once she got to the set, somebody would say, okay, here's the TV show, here's the premise. Nobody did. Makeup, wardrobe, on the set, start acting. And she just had no idea what she was doing. She did the gig, she finished the part, she went home, next thing came up. Um, what she didn't know is, she didn't know what a Star Trek was at the time. She'd never heard of something like that, so she didn't know what it meant. And, you know, she did a, jo a good job as Nona, uh, the, the, um, the witch doctor kind of person, in the episode of Private Little War. Uh, her character actually saved James T. Kirk from the bite of the Mugatu, uh, a unicorn gorilla beast. So uh, you, you, Star Trek was not a high-budget TV series in those days. So decades later, when they were interviewing and asking her about this, she said, had somebody told me I may have played that slightly differently, but probably not much differently. She didn't know. She was married to somebody. In the, it, her character was married, and yet she was trying to seduce and, and control and take James Kirk as hers. And she didn't understand why. Well, because Jim Kirk, you know, he always got the girl. That was, that was part of the, the shtick. She didn't understand her part in the, in, the, in the TV show. And so she did her best. She kind of fumbled through it. But had she known what the role was, what was going on, she may have handled that differently. She may have approached the role slightly differently, understanding what, what was going on. And the reason I bring that up is because it's important to know what story you're in, what your part is, where you fit into these things, so that you can act appropriately so that you can respond appropriately. And so this, this morning, as we look through uh, 1 Corinthians 7, as we finish up that chapter, um, Paul has got some pretty important things to say, but what he's going to show us is he's going to remind us where we're at in the story so we can understand what our role is, what our part is. That's, that's how he's going to work it, is he's going to help us to do that. Before we begin, there are some really big translation, translation issues in this section, a handful of places. I am going to promise to not nerd out on that and dig into all the details, but I want to point out some of the translation issues and then, and then press on. So hopefully we can just kind of go through. If you've got big questions about it or if your Bible doesn't read that way, um, you can ask me later next week because I'm going out of town. So, <laughs> uh, so we'll start. It starts in verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, and there is the first problem, the word betrothed. Some of you, if you're looking in your Bible, you see uh, virgin. And, and the problem is that the, the word could be translated either as virgin or a couple other ways. And so it depends on the context. Um, it's, it's, it's literally virgin, but it doesn't necessarily have to be translated that way. Uh, the King James New International Version and the New American Standard use the word virgin. But ESV, we see betrothed. And, um, and to not get too lost in the, in the weeds here, I think the idea behind the word is those who are not married which in a biblical understanding of, of human sexuality would be the virgin. And so that could be somebody who is engaged to be married or who's not. So Paul starts with, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who's trustworthy. So those, those people who are currently unmarried, uh, I don't have a really strong command for you. I don't have a chapter and verse I can quote, but I do have what I, is my judgment as your apostle as someone who's inspired by the Holy Spirit writing this letter, and I think I have a good judgment for you. So he's going to give us some advice is what he's doing. But this is the apostle, and so advice 
is a little bit more than just, it would be nice to do that. So let's press on. He says, I think that in the view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Didn't we cover that before? He said, you should stay in the position you're in. If you're a slave, you don't have to be free, but if you can, good. And if you're married, stay married. And if you're not married, don't get married. And, and it's okay. And when we looked at that, we said that you don't have to change those things to become a better Christian. Jesus is going to accept you, whatever role that is. You don't have to, to change him. Some people will change. Some people will do, do things different, but you don't have to start there. So he, he says that, um, that in his view of the present distress, that's another translational issue. What does he mean by present distress? Uh, some interpreters look at that and think that there was a persecution going on in Corinth at the time. The problem with that interpretation is there's nowhere else in the letter that he seems to indicate that they're being persecuted. It just isn't there. And second of all, there's really no historical data that says Corinth was being persecuted around the time of Paul's writing. So it, it might not mean that there was a specific persecution happening on them. Um, what I think it means is something much broader. And, and we'll come to that and we'll unpack it a little bit more. I think he's talking about this present age, what this present age is like. Is, is it's, it's this, um, this um, difficulty, this, this distress, this difficult time. And so we'll come back to that. Let me come back to that in a little bit because there's more to be said about that. Um, he says, it's good for a person to remain as he is. And, and we've covered that previously. It, it's a good idea, but he's, he's kind of returning back to that argument because don't forget, this is part of his whole discussion starting in verse five or chapter five all the way to here. Um, it's, it's part of this bigger arch. We can sometimes atomize things where we take them out and just look at this one thing, but this is part of a bigger argument. So he's returning to something he said earlier. And so what he's gonna do is he's gonna address um, married, unmarried, and widows in this section. So verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Stay as you are. You don't have to do these things to be acceptable before the Lord. But if you do marry, if you decide that you want to get married, you have not sinned. In other words, he's not issuing commands here saying, thou shalt marry, thou shalt not marry. He's saying, this is my opinion. It is better if you stay the way you are. That, that's where he's going with that. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. So it's, again, that, that question of what do we mean by betrothed in this context? The word takes on a slightly different nuance of meaning as we go through it because it's, it's applied in different ways. Um, so you haven't sinned if you do that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. So he's already talking about this, this current distress, and then he says this appointed time has grown very short. What he means by that is we're living in these last days. And so that is what's going to frame how we understand these questions is because it, it, the days are short. 2,000 years later, are the days short? Hey, guess what? The days are even shorter now than they were there because we've already covered 2,000 years. So it's only getting shorter. We'll, we'll unpack a little bit more of what it means to live in light of that too. So the second part of verse 29. From now on, let those who have wives live as if they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as if they had no dealings with it. This is pretty strident, isn't it? This is, I mean, these are clear commands. Do this. Does he mean then 
after all his discussion of marriage, does he mean at this point then, you have to live as if you weren't married. So move out, act like you, you know, you're best buddies with that person, we, we're going to undo all of that. Does he say, when he says, uh, mourn as if you're not mourning, rejoice as if you're not rejoicing, is he saying, fake it. If you're happy, don't be happy. If you're sad, don't be sad. It, when he talks about the world's goods, is he saying, if you have money, got to give it all away. It's all got to go. And then he talks about the world. He says, uh, those who deal with the words, have you had no dealings with it? It's all pretty absolute, isn't it? It's pretty strict. Pretty strict. So what I'm about to say is, he doesn't mean that literally. Your question should be, you better prove that, preacher boy. What do you mean he doesn't mean that literally? Well, you have to read it in the context, right? He's just spent a ton of time explaining how a wife and a husband should live together. Uh, verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Chapter 7, verse 5, earlier in this chapter, do not deprive one another. Be together. Um, it, chapter 5, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of this world. So he's already dealt with some of these things, and his point is not separate, have nothing to do with them, pretend that they don't exist. Instead, what he's saying is something different. He's saying, act as if. Change your attitude. You've got to live in a slightly different way. You've got to think about this in a different light. So you have to act, you have to live as though you weren't married. Live as if, or mourn as if you're not mourning. Rejoice as if you're not rejoicing, those kind of things. In other words, don't put your identity in those things. Don't put your hope in those things. Don't build those things up to be something more than they're supposed to be. So we have to live in light of this other thing, this other reality. So verse 26, he said, in view of the present distress, in this chapter, or this section, he just said, the appointed time has been short. And then in verse 31, he's going to say, for the present form of this world is passing away. So what he's telling us is that we need to live in light of the reality that this present world, the way the world is currently, is passing away. We're in the final stages of it. We're coming to the end of it. The, um, the, uh, that's where we are currently. And, and I get that because in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, which we'll come to in a few weeks, he says, now these things happen. He's recounting the, the, the stories of the Old Testament, of the Exodus and those kind of things. He said, these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the age has come. So we're living in the end of the age. We're in that, that end section of this. So how are we in these last days then? How is that possible? Well, it's because you have to understand how the Bible thinks of days. We tend to think of time as chronology. I have a watch on and it tells me hours, minutes, and seconds. I have a day planner. It tells me weeks, days, weeks, and months, and years. And that's how I measure time is in these incremental pieces. And that's a good way to measure time. That, that's not a problem. That fits within how the Bible understands time. The Bible understands time as big epics, as, as big chunks of time. So one of my professors in seminary, uh, Kevin Van Hooser, uh, he has this, this concept he calls theodrama, really nerdy technical kind of stuff. But what he's basically saying is, is he's, he's saying there's, we're living in this drama. We're living in this storyline. And we have to understand where we're at in the story. Now, he's not saying that it's all fake and pretend and you should fake it. It's as real as anything, but it's a way to categorize, a way to help us understand this. Because Paul's going to talk about being an athlete. He does not mean that we all have to become athletes. 
He's using it as a metaphor, a way for us to understand. So when you look at this as a theodrama, as God's enacting in the world, think of Act 1. Act 1 is the creation, the fall, and then the repercussions of the fall, Genesis 1 through 11. Act 2, Genesis 12, through the end of the Old Testament. This is marked by God working, creating a people to himself, making covenant with Abraham, creating a nation with Isaac's offspring, keeping them captive, bringing them into the promised land, all of these things. It's, it's, it's categorized, it's built around Israel. Act three is the king comes, the promise, the one who is promised in the covenant, the, the seed that would bless the nations. He's come, and it's the story of his arrival. It is Jesus. It's, it's the gospels. Act three, dominated by Jesus' ministry and his death and his resurrection, Act 4. That's where we're in now. Act 4 is that kingdom has now broken into this world and is beginning to spread. And he's spreading it through his people. He's pushing it out throughout the entire world. We're going to go to the nations with this, this kingdom, and it's going to continue to spread. That's Act 4. And then Act 5. We haven't gotten there yet. Jesus returns. The kingdom has come. The king ascends to the throne. He is seated. He's reigning. He's here. It's great. So that's why I brought up Nancy Kovac at the beginning. Where are you in the story? What story are you in? So how do we live now in Act 4 with an eye to Act 5? The time is short. This epic is marked by the, the mission of the church to carry the gospel to the nations. That's what this, this era is about. And when we've completed that, then Jesus returns. He comes back. So now go back and ask that question. What does he mean to act like you're not married? What could that possibly mean? Well, if we're looking at Act 5, and we're saying I'm currently married, in Act 5, they are neither married nor given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Act 5 is the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Act 5 is when the bridegroom comes and the virgins with their with their um, uh, lamps lit are excited because he's come. Marriage now becomes something very different in light of Act 5. So how should you act today? How should you see marriage today? You should live in light of what's coming. Mourn like, like you don't hurt. Mourn like there's no loss. How, how do you do that? Well, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, don't mourn or don't grieve as those who have no hope. So you mourn, you, you are sorry, there, something bad has happened, you have lost. There's a Coldplay song, uh, Fix You. When, when you try your best and you don't succeed, when you get what you want but not what you need, when, when you've lost something that you can't live without, could it be worse? That's genuine mourning, that is real sorrow, and that, those tears are genuine. But what Paul says is, don't let that consume you. You have a hope. Whatever you've lost today, whatever that thing that you can't, you, you can't replace, there's something better coming. Act 5 is coming. So lament. Be sad. You, you've lost a loved one. You've lost your health. You've lost your mind. You've lost whatever it is that, that has gone from you. Understand, Act 5 is coming. Be sad, but don't lose hope. Hope is still there. Rejoice as if that you're not rejoicing. Why? Because as good as this is, something better is coming. It, it's going to be better. So that's why Paul wants us to live in light of that. So this whole thing about at, live like you're not married is not 
be celibate and, and don't see each other. There's more to it. So let's keep going because he's going to unpack some of this more for us. Verses 32 through 35, I want you to be free from anxieties. Pastor Paul has just announced to us he wants us to be free from anxieties. How, Paul, how can we be free from anxiety? How can we do that? Because life is filled with anxieties. There's plenty to worry about. And here he goes. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about the worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay a restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So this is why I'm saying he is not saying forget marriage, put it away, scrap it. What he's saying is, I want you to see marriage in a new light, see it a different way. I want you to be free from anxieties. So as you're married, what you do is you look to your wife or your husband not to fulfill everything in you and to make you happy and be, be everything that you want. Instead, look at them in a new way. We're, we're going through uh, marriage counseling with someone, and we're reading a book by the Kellers, Tim and, Nancy, or Tim and Kathy Keller, uh, The Meaning of Marriage. And so this is one of the things they said about what is marriage? What is it like? He said traditional marriages uh, made the family the ultimate value in life. So I'll just paraphrase it. I know what he said. Um, traditional marriages, you would have arranged marriages between two families. Your son is going to marry our daughter, and our, our two families will be united in this way. We will have uh, joint ventures in business, or you'll buy from us, or our tribes will be united or something like that. The marriage was seen as a way to unite things, to bring these two people together. That was the ultimate good is society or the family. That's what the marriage was about. In modern Western culture, it's perhaps worse because now marriage is about me. I, I want you around because you're nice arm candy, and as long as you're pretty and good looking, you know, this will work, and, and do you make me feel good? I, it, are you fulfilling my my uh, vision of myself? Are you making me feel good about myself? And you wind up putting this weight on your spouse that they can't possibly carry. It's impossible. You're going to crush them. So this is what he says. They said, but the Bible sees God as the supreme good, not the individual or the family. And that gives us a view of marriage that ultimately unites feelings and duty, passion and promise. Because we, when we have a Christian marriage, we come together and the first vows in a traditional Christian wedding service, do you know who the first vows you give? The, the husband and wife are looking right at the minister. They're not looking at each other. Do you promise to, to love and, and obey? Do you love, promise? And you're taking your vows not to your spouse yet, but to God. And then after you've taken these vows to God on how your marriage is going to look, then you turn and face each other and you take vows to each other. And that, that's revolutionary because what that does is that puts at the center of marriage, not me and my happiness, not society and the good for society, but God and his glory. And so that's how we then can get to Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. Is, who's at the center of this? Not me and my happiness. It's God. And by the way, the happiness comes with it. It's not excluded. It's not like now you're going to suffer. 
So he says, I want you to, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is, is anxious how to serve the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. That's because he's put too much emphasis on the relationship. And, and, and I've got to keep my wife happy or she might leave me. And then, you know, she, what am I going to do? The wife is thinking, I've got to keep the husband happy because if he goes, man, he's got the car, he's got the kids, he's got the money, he's got the income. You know, I'll be, I'll be high and dry. You're putting too much pressure on it. Look to God in that. Now how do we have a relationship? How do we focus our marriage? I want you to be free from anxieties. The anxiety is if you put emphasis on the wrong things, it'll be like that. So he says in verse 35, I say this to your own benefit, not to lay restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Why? Because in the marriage, the Lord is central. You won't be divided in, in your devotion. You'll be united because both of you are thinking this is the direction we should go. So do you see why... Back uh, earlier, he was talking about if you're married to an unbeliever and they're content to be with you, stay with them. Why? Because you, your actions, the way you approach marriage now, your thoughts and your processing of marriage might actually win that other person. And then you won't be divided. You'll be united. Marriage is such a strong thing, it can even encompass and bless an enemy of the cross. Somebody who's opposed to Christ could, could bring them in. That's what the power of marriage is. So. This is what marriage is like. It's, it's not transactional. And it's not, make me happy, baby. It is, how can I serve the Lord in this marriage? By laying down my life for my wife. How can I serve the Lord in this marriage? By submitting gladly to my husband and, and finding in him the joy of the Lord. And, and now the pressure's off. Now you can make mistakes. And when you get that bad look from your spouse, you can actually feel bad about it, but not destroyed. You're not threatened because it's God that I'm trying to please. Lord, I have, I have offended my wife. I'm sorry, Lord. Let me go apologize to my wife. Whereas if, if that's not the focus, you could really wind up putting your foot in it, making a bad mistake. So he says this for our benefit so that we're, we're, um, we have our undivided devotion to the Lord. That's why he, he described marriage earlier and he said, in such cases, the brother is not enslaved. Marriage should not be slavery. If marriage is slavery, that's where the weight of anxiety comes in. So now he speaks to a different group of people. He's dealt with some married folks, verse 36 uh, through 38. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, pause. Translation problem here. Um, is it his betrothed? Or is it his virgin? If it's his virgin, then the idea is if anyone thinks he's behaving improperly toward his virgin, it's thought to be a father who's not behaving properly. He's not taking care of his, his unmarried daughter yet. Um, if it's betrothed, it might be your fiance. That's, that's kind of the, the couple of different ways to, uh, to see that. Um, I think in this case, the fiancé is probably the better idea because there's a relationship. If it's his father not behaving properly towards the daughter, we've just introduced a whole new complication, a whole other person, a whole new relationship in this equation, which five through seven we haven't talked about. It just feels unnatural to me. That doesn't feel like what's going on. It feels like he's talking to couples. And if you're, if you're engaged but you're not married, um, then... Here's what you should do. He says, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Another translation issue. 
Um, what does it mean passions are strong? The word passion is not in the Greek. It's not there. Um, the word that is there, it's actually literally, literally translated um, above the uh, peak, over the peak, across the peak, that idea. And so some people would translate that. You'll see some versions, I think the New American Standard 1995 edition, and I think uh, maybe the King James, if I remember right, translate that as, if a woman is past her prime, or the King James says, beyond the flower of youth, because it's beautiful. So if that's what that means, then what this is, we go back to is it's the dad has been keeping his daughter, and now she's getting past the age to marry. And so he, he's not treating her properly. He should have let her go get married earlier. I, again, that's, that's much more complicated. So how could past the peak then be rendered as strong? Um, well, that would be like, here's the peak of strength, and this has gone beyond. There's a couple of cases where it's rendered that way, where it's like not just this much, but even beyond that. Um, but the question then, is it passion? What is, it, what is strong here? Well, we get passion because uh, it talks later about his desire. But even there, there's another translation issue because it's actually will. So put all that aside, what's going on? Here's what's going on. If a couple is married and the, the desire is strong, it doesn't necessarily mean sexual desire. It doesn't mean something like that. It could just be we are so compatible. We are so together. We so get each other. We laugh at both our stupid jokes. We tell the same inside humor from TV shows that we've watched. Nobody else would get us. And the sexual part might be there, it might not. It's we have a strong desire to be together. He's saying if that's the case, then you're behaving towards your, your beloved. Maybe just go ahead and get married. Remember what he's been saying throughout the whole chapter. It's okay to get married. It's okay to not get married. So if, if the desire is there, if it's happening, just go for it. Go, let them get married. It is no sin. It's okay. Verse 37, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and he is determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So it could be that you have this couple, and they are just best buds. Just, they get along so stinking well. And they're, they're like, well, I, I am not like losing control over wanting to be with you. I just enjoy you. And, and he says, if you don't want to get married, then don't get married. That's okay, too. I had a best friend in high school, Kay. She was, me and I, or she and I would sit in her backyard on her picnic table and talk until like three in the morning. And you know what ruined it? We dated. We started dating. And it just was like, nah, that wasn't, that wasn't who we were. So that's what I think of in this case is, this is kind of the person he's talking about, is, is you have this beautiful relationship you don't have to get married. Maybe you could just continue the relationship as really dear friends. That, that's possible. But you have to think, keep things in control because there is a natural chemistry in human beings where we kind of tend to enjoy being with other people like that. And so you have to be careful with those things. I think that's what happened with Kay and I is we slipped over a line and then we started dating. And it was like, eh, we didn't have to do that. So he, he, again, he doesn't want us to be anxious. He's still talking in those terms. So if you want to just keep friends with her, that's okay. If you want to remain unmarried friends, that's good. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Isn't that great? There's, there's, he doesn't say, don't ever get married. He's, he's putting it in a way that, that is making it acceptable. It's fine. 
So marriage is good even in light of these last days. Even though the, the eschaton, Jesus' return, is coming towards us really quick, marriage is still okay in that, in that context. It can still happen. So then he switches, and he's going to talk about somebody else. He's going to talk about um, the previously married. So verses 39 and 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whoever she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she'll be happier if she just remains as she is. And, and I, too, think I have the spirit of God. So what he's, he does now is he turns to widows and he says, those who have previously been married and now you're free. You're, 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 that's why he quotes that about you're married as long as your husband's alive. Once your husband's dead, you're free. You don't have to remain married. You, you could, um, you're now free to marry somebody else. Yet, he says, in my judgment, I think you might be happier if you stay like me. Uh, so this is that third category. I said at the beginning, this is Paul the Apostle's opinion about things. Now, I want to qualify that a little bit. First of all, Paul is an apostle. An apostle has authority within the church to make these kind of pronouncements. He, he could direct these people to do these things, thou shalt and thou shalt not. That's the role of the apostle, and we'll come to that when we get to chapter 9. We'll, we'll, we'll do a deep dive into what an apostle is. And it's his opinion. But not only is he an apostle, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. And so when Paul says, very carefully, I want you to think about this, I think we ought to think about that. Right? He, he's not giving directions. Listen to how careful he is, how pastoral he is. Verse 25, I give you my judgment as someone who is trustworthy, not as a new command. Verse 28, you might have worldly troubles, and I want to spare you that. I don't want to command you. I want, I want to spare you of worldly troubles. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxiety, not you're outside of Christ if you don't do this. Verse 35, I say this for your benefit, not as a constraint. There's no new law here. Verse 37 and verse, verse 38, he will do well. Not he will be saved or he will be within the bounds of God's will on this. He will, this was a, a wisdom issue. You'll do well if you do these things. Verse 40, in my judgment, she will be happier. He's being a pastor to these folks. He's being sympathetic with them. And, and one of the things I say about what kind of book is the New Testament, it's not a book of law. I think it's a book of wisdom. It's, it's, it's this, this salvation that we have in Christ. And now, how do we live that salvation out? How do we live wisely in that? And that's what we see Paul doing here is, I'm offering you my wisdom. I think it's a good thing to not get married. But he's already said, not everybody has that gift. So I think as, as believers, if we're going to listen to our apostle here, we ought to slow down and listen to our apostle. Generally speaking, we just think, oh, marriage is the way. Everybody's going to get married. You meet somebody, you're single, hey, no problem. You'll, you'll meet somebody someday. Maybe they won't. I, I'm thinking about incorporating this into pre-marriage counseling. Question one, have you thought about not getting married? Have you taken that seriously? Because we don't think about those things. We just kind of go, well, everybody's going to get married, right? Paul, our apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying, slow down here. Think about this for a minute. If you are if you're married, you are in a relationship with somebody else, and even though you shouldn't be anxious about it, you still have to work with this other person, and there's things that you have to serve for them. If you're free, you could wind up doing more for the Lord. 
You, you could, you, you get married to somebody and you go, sweetheart, I've got great news. We're going to Afghanistan as missionaries. And you're, the betrothed says, oh, no, we're not. Have you considered not getting married? Maybe, maybe that's not where God's calling you. Because now you would be free to go explore those kind of things and figure out if Afghanistan is really where you need to be or not. So I think there's some wisdom here that we should pay attention to. Wisdom is not law. Wisdom is asking questions. How do we do this? Should we do this? Should we do that? There's no yes or no right or wrong answer. There is better or not good. And so our apostle is warning us here, you need to pay attention. You you need to think about this first. My advice is consider not being married. It works for me. Look at my ministry. Look what I'm able to do. Consider that. You who are not married, think about that. You who are previously married, maybe consider not getting married again. Just, just think through it. It's not everybody's gift. It's not everybody's thing. It's not something they're gonna, everybody's going to do. But that's where Paul is going. Is He's calling us to wisdom. He's calling us to think through this. He wants us to do what he thinks is right. But he knows that people are complicated. You won't find two identical people that are, do, you know, feel the same way and do everything exactly the same. It just it doesn't happen. And so as he looks across the city of Corinth at all of these believers, he's going, there are people in all kinds of different situations. I'm going to offer you my wisdom, not my law. He's, he's done this before, by the way, in uh, Philemon. Philemon was a slave owner, and he owned a slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus met Paul. Paul sends him back to Philemon with a letter. And in that letter, Paul says, accordingly, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what's right. I am an apostle. I have the authority. I can command you to do what's right. But I don't want to. He says, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Philemon, I want you to do this because you want to do it. My, my, my goal here is not to lay down law and constrain your, your conscience in these things. I want your heart. And I want your heart to do what you think is right, what you know is right. It's not right to own another human being. Philemon, do what you know is right. So he's using that same kind of approach here with marriage or singleness. He's asking the question, what is best for you? Have you thought through it all? Have you slowed down and thought through what this is? What is the wise thing to do in this case? And back to that illustration from the very beginning, This is in light of the fact that the end times are coming, that Jesus is going to return, that we are days closer than we were, and every day that ticks by, we're getting closer and closer to his return. So if you're thinking, well, I will be lonely if I'm not married. I'll be, what will I lose if if I'm not married? I've got great news for you. You will be married. The wedding feast of a lamb is coming. The whole church will be wed to Christ. Not individually, but as the body of Christ. So you're not going to lose out. There's no, no loss here. It just transforms and turns into something else. You might be able to spend your days investing more time and more time and more time serving the Lord, however he calls you, whatever way he calls you, rather than being concerned about um, making sure that the marriage is happy and, and this is that and you know, all of those kind of things. It, it could be freeing. It could be liberating in light of the fact that you don't lose out. It's just delayed until his return. But as he reminded us, the days are short. It, it's coming. So that's, that's his, his entire thought. That's his thoughts on um, marriage, singleness, and widowhood. 
um, is it, there's, there's a right way, there's a wrong way. Marriage is a great way. Singleness is a great way. Widowhood, you can marry or you can remain single. All of these kind of things. But it's in the confines. Remember where this started, chapter 5. A man has his stepmother, and you Corinthians are applauding. So it's, it's, there is a place for marriage in the midst of that, and that ain't it. <laughs> That was not the right one. So he taught us all of those things. And now he concludes his thoughts on marriage. And next week, it's um, now concerning food offered to idols. That's going to be really contemporary and important for us, isn't it? How many idols do you see food being offered to? I can't wait to get into this. I have no idea, by the way. I haven't looked at it yet. So I'm, I'm anxious to see what the Lord is going to teach me about food offered to idols and how that applies for us today. Um, so with that, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, I just thank you so much for this great wisdom. Unmarried Paul, it, it, he may have been married, but it seems like he wasn't. And yet, Lord, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through his natural understanding that he gained through the scriptures, just studying and reading them, through the illumination of the Spirit, through all of these things, Lord, he brings us such great message on being married, on being single in widow, widowhood. Um, such wisdom, Lord, thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that, that we would embrace those questions and those thoughts and, and ask those things. Lord, would you grant us who are married and who are going to be married, Lord, to see that at the center of our marriage as Christians is Jesus Christ. And then we can serve and love our spouse in an appropriate way, in a way that won't burden them and won't crush us. And so, Lord, thank you for this, this glimpse into marriage and, and be with me next week as I try to figure out what this next section is about. Lord, I, I want to honor you and your word. Uh, so would you be continue to be with us and, and continue to illuminate these things? And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.